welcome to Come Follow Me with Bree, episode 33, Be Not Troubled. Hello, I hope you all had a good week. Uh, I'm going to jump right in. So this Sunday, when I started really getting into what I would be talking about for this episode, I started getting into it and kind of forming an outline, and then I went to sacrament meeting and I heard the talk. And within a few hours after that, I listened to an amazing talk from Sherry Dew as the BYU's 2021 Women's Conference keynote speaker. And both of those talks, the sacrament meeting talk, which was really good, and Sherry Dew's talk were right in line with exactly where the Spirit had led me previously about for this episode. And so my first thought was, oh man, should I talk about something different? I feel all of a sudden like everyone's talking about the same thing. But then I also had the thought that I feel like the podcast, this podcast as a whole, is often coming back to the same thing. And with that thought, the Spirit whispered something different. The Lord repeats what is important. So this topic that I'm talking about this week must be important. And maybe it's important for me. Maybe this is something that I need to hear multiple times. I needed to hear a couple of talks and I need to prepare, needed to prepare something for myself on it. And maybe somebody out there, maybe one of you needs to hear this topic. And I hope that you continue to repeat it to other people that you meet in your sphere of influence, because from my own personal revelation at this time, this is a topic that the Lord cares a whole lot about because he is repeating it to me over and over again over the last few months. And I also think that sometimes revelation, a way we recognize it is through repetition. By repetition, the spirit helps our brain and heart notice and realize that that repetition is not coincidental. And it is a grand message and a sign from heaven that this is something that he wants us to take into our hearts and know deep in our souls and cement our conviction to be who we were foreordained to be. So I'm sure you're wondering at this point, since I haven't said it yet, what is this message? In this section, um, section 45, verse 35, it says, Be not troubled, for when all these things shall come to pass, ye may know that the promises which have been made unto you shall be fulfilled. And Another important person, another important way that this topic has been repeated is in the previous, not this last one, but the one before general conference. What did President Nelson ask us to do? He asked us to find the promises made to the house of Israel. All right, to start with some context, if you remember from last week, the saints received, quote, the law and some other important revelations. There are still tons of people gathering in Ohio, and it's a little chaotic. But aside from the chaos of gathering so many people with different backgrounds and circumstances and different previous religions, there are also a lot of people who already lived in Ohio that are not members of the church, who are all of a sudden feeling as though their home is being overrun by this huge influx of saints. So there were a lot of rumors, a lot of slander, a lot of general unrest, people trying to get people riled up about the saints moving in. So they were not only having to deal with coming together as a community, but now in addition, they were dealing with problems from the neighbors. And 
if I'm honest, I'm thinking about being one of those neighbors and I don't know who these Mormons are and all of a sudden they're taking over my entire community. I might be a little worried too. So in this context, Joseph receives this revelation, which is section 45, and it is exactly what they needed. It is such a comforting section. It reminds the saints and and us of all the blessings that we are promised, that though things are chaotic, requiring lots of sacrifice and adjustment to change, and feeling a little frightening, that there is a bigger picture to remember, which if we can grasp that picture, there is no reason to be troubled, because every glorious promise that he has made to the house of Israel will be fulfilled. But living here on the earth, being not troubled, that's a pretty tall order, and we are not perfect. Kind of like the command to be therefore perfect, be not troubled. Is that actually possible to be perfect? Is it actually possible to live through this life and be not troubled? I don't think without the Savior's help, I don't think that that's possible. But let's look at what the word troubled really means. So let's start with some synonyms. I always want to say synonym. Now I can't even say cinnamon. (laughs) Synonyms of troubled. So listen to these words. A flutter, antsy, anxious, hung up, ill at ease, insecure, jittery, jumpy, nervous, queasy, tense, uneasy, upset, uptight worried. I think I can say with relatively high confidence that everyone listening to this podcast, including me, has felt more than one of these emotions over the last year. And if you think about the last year, at least to me, it feels impossible that I could have experienced the last year and not been troubled. However, I have found that I could have been much more troubled. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about why we as saints are able to not be troubled or at least not be as troubled or be able to pull ourselves out of that troubled mindset. Something I noticed about the word troubled and all the synonyms is a word that is not there. Sadness. As we talked about a few episodes ago, we see over and over again that the prophets in the scriptures feel great sadness when things are going downhill in society. And I think that this is an emotion that we are going to become well acquainted with. When we are asked to not be troubled, I don't think it means that we won't have any unpleasant emotions about what's happening. Unpleasant emotions are just a part of living this life. And I am positive that he does not expect or even approve of the attitude of, oh, well, that's how it was supposed to be. The wicked are getting what they deserve. Charity is the pure love of Christ, and we are commanded to have charity toward all men. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 14, it says, let all things be done with charity. And how on earth could you have charity and not feel sorrow for the world And as Mormon calls them, the fair ones whose hearts are failing them. I think it is something that we will feel, have been feeling to the very depths of our souls as we see it happen. But troubled is not to mourn. 
troubled is to feel anxious and listen to the definition of anxious. Experiencing worry, unease, or nervousness, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Does the Lord's plan have an uncertain outcome? No. So when he tells us not to be troubled, it is because if our foundations are built upon Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, the outcome for us is sure. We cannot fall. We have been promised that. The church of Jesus Christ cannot fall. The Lord cannot fail. And in this last general conference, President Nelson reminded us of this. He says, Please know this. If everything and everyone else in the world whom you trust should fail, Jesus Christ and his church will never fail you. The Lord never slumbers, nor does he sleep. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He will not forsake his covenants, his promise, or his love for his people. He works miracles today, and he will work miracles tomorrow. So when he says not to be troubled, who is he talking to? The saints. He's talking to the house of Israel. He's talking to them back in Joseph Smith's time, and he is talking to us now. How is the command to not be troubled possible? It is because the outcome and blessings we can claim are already sure. So let's talk about some of the promises in this section that make it possible. I'm not saying that it will happen for you all the time, but it is possible for us not to be troubled in a time when Satan is taking full hold of the world around us. Now, first, he starts out this section the same way he often does in many of these sections by reminding us who he is. Verse 1 Hearken, O ye people of my church, to whom the kingdom has been given. Hearken ye and give ear to him who laid the foundation of the earth, who made the heavens and the host thereof, and by whom all things were made which live and move and have a being. I think it is so impactful and something that we should notice that he starts out so many sections by reminding us who he is. It is so important that we remember who he is because sometimes it seems like we forget. And if it's important that we remember who he is, think of how impactful it can be to our lives by remembering who we are. We are children of God. We are heirs to the kingdom of heaven. We have immeasurable potential. I think that remembering who we are can ground us firmly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And remembering who he is can ground us in a way that will allow us, make it possible for us not to be troubled because we will have perfect trust in him. So let's talk about who he says he is in this particular section. He laid the foundations of the earth. He made the heavens and all the hosts thereof, and by whom all things were made which live and move and have being. If you believe this deep in your soul, how is it possible to question his plan? Who are we to decide that our wisdom could possibly trump his? We may not understand all the details. We may have unanswered questions. But if the Spirit has borne witness that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the creator of all things, you can build everything on that. 
And then in verse 4, he reminds us that not only is he the creator of all things, but he is the advocate to the Father for all those who were created. It says in verse 3, Listen to him who is the advocate with the Father, who is pleading your cause before him, saying, Father, behold the sufferings and death of him who did no sin, in whom thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of thy Son which was shed, the blood of him who gavest that thyself might be glorified. Wherefore, my Father, spare these my brethren that believe on my name, that they may come unto me and have everlasting life. We need not be troubled because he lived, suffered, died, and rose again for the sole purpose of fulfilling all that needed to be fulfilled in order to plead your cause before the Father. The creator of all things has two primary life goals, to glorify the Father and to do so by ensuring that you have a way to come to him and have everlasting life and become joint heirs with him, to become gods ourselves. Have you ever felt uncomfortable with grasping that possibility? I know that I have. It feels prideful to think that I could ever be an equal heir with Jesus Christ that the God that I worship and adore, that I could ever be a joint heir equal with him? Tad R. Callister of the 70 said this in his talk that was called Our Identity and Our Destiny. He says, Paul understood this principle, for when speaking to the men of Athens, he said, Certain also of your poets have said, For we also are his offspring. Paul knew the consequences of being the offspring of God, for while speaking to the Romans, he declared, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Not subordinate heirs, not junior, not contingent, but joint equal heirs with Christ himself, to share in all that he shall share. After all, is not that the same promise made by the Lord to the Apostle John? To him that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame, and am set down with my father in his throne. Is it any wonder that Paul should write to the saints of Philippi, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ. Paul, who understood so very well our destiny, was striving for the reward of Godhood. Peter, who also understood this doctrine, pled with the saints that they might become partakers of the divine nature meaning recipients of Godhood. That is exactly what Jesus ordered when speaking to the Book of Mormon saints. Therefore, what manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. And it is exactly what the Savior promised in this dispensation for all faithful saints. Then shall they be gods, because they have all power, and the angels are subject unto them. The critic, still shaking his head, responds, But such a concept lowers God to the status of man, and thus robs him of his divinity. Or to the contrary, comes the reply, does it elevate man in his divine-like potential? Paul well knew this argument of the critic and silenced it once and for all ages ago. Speaking to the saints of Philippi, he said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The Savior knew that for him to be a God and for us to all be thus minded would not rob God of his divinity. That makes good sense. After all, who is greater, that being who limits or that being who enhances man's eternal progression? One might ask, who can give greater honor and glory to God, a creature of lower or more exalted status? 
Can an animal offer the same honor and worship with the same passion and intensity as a human? Can a mere mortal express the imperial feelings or exercise the spiritual fervency of a potential god? One's capacity to honor and worship is magnified with one's intellectual, emotional, cultural, and spiritual enlightenment. Accordingly, the more we become like God, the greater our ability to pay Him homage. In that process of lifting man heavenward, God simultaneously multiplies His own honor and glory and thus is glorified more, not less. Brigham Young addressed this issue. Man's godhood will not detract anything from the glory and might of our Heavenly Father, for He will still remain our Father and we shall still be subject to Him. And as we progress in glory and power, it the more enhances the glory and power of our Heavenly Father. That is the irony of the critic's argument. Godhood for man does not diminish God's status. To the contrary, it elevates it by producing more intelligent, more passionate, more spiritual saints who have enlarged capacities to understand, honor, and worship Him. Wow. When you think of it that way, that your potential to become a God enlarges your ability to glorify God? The Savior says this so many times about Himself, that He did all that He did in order to glorify the Father. In fact, He is giving us the ultimate example. Our whole existence should be focused on bringing glory to the Father. And that just fills me with such passion to serve the Lord in the best way possible. We are not progressing in that direction to glorify ourselves. We are progressing to glorify Him. And that is what the Savior did in His life. He existed to glorify the Father. We need not be troubled because we are being refined through our experiences on this earth to progress in this unimaginable way. To become more intelligent, more passionate, more spiritual, more humble, less self-serving, less prideful, less, as President Nelson would say, myopic, so that we can glorify God. We need not be troubled because He is our advocate with the Father so that we can have the opportunity to become as He is so that we can glorify the Father to the fullest extent possible. And unimaginably, the fullest extent possible is to become joint heirs with Jesus Christ, to become gods ourselves. Because who can give more glory to God than a God? Think of how perfect that plan is. The Son was sent to atone for our sins so that all of this is possible. And how myopic is it to imagine that the troubles we experience here on earth is anything but a way to refine us so that we can glorify God in the highest degree. My brilliant mom, her name's Tani, Tani Kemp, she compared it to this. She said, the family mirrors so many things, including that we want our children to be the best that they possibly can be. When they do that, it only brings honor, happiness, joy, satisfaction, and brings more to the family table. Every success, every inch of progress, every virtue, and all increase in character of the child doesn't rob a parent. It only adds to the treasure. Think of how true that is. If you have children, think of how true that is and how you feel that way sincerely about your children. So if that is true for us as imperfect, self-centered mortals, Think of how much more magnified this feeling is toward us from the Father. Okay, wow, I kind of got off on a tangent there, but my mind was just getting so blown thinking of all of that. 
Next in this section, he reminds us again of who he is. In verse 7, he says, For verily I say unto you that I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the light and the life of the world, a light that shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. This is more reassurance that it should be no mystery or surprise to us when the truth butts heads with the world. Jesus Christ is a light that shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. It doesn't say that the darkness probably won't understand. It says that it comprehendeth it not. It cannot understand. So why would we be troubled when the world disagrees with us, with the Savior? He literally tells us all through Scripture that those under the influence of Satan will not have eyes to see. It is not a mystery. That inability to comprehend the Lord's ways does not invalidate the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is a further sign and witness to us that we need not be troubled when we see this inability to understand the Lord's ways. There is truth and error. There is dark and light. And we are told that that is a fact. In 3 Nephi chapter 13, verse 24, it says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. So when we see this in the world, it is no cause for alarm. This is how we are told that it is. Now in verse 8 of section 45, it says, I came unto mine own, and mine own received me not. But unto as many as received me gave I power to do many miracles, and to become the sons of God. And even unto them that believed on my name gave I power to obtain eternal life. We need not be troubled because if we receive him, we are given God's power. Elder Neil L. Anderson said in his talk called A Compensatory Spiritual Power for the Righteous. He says, My brothers and sisters, as evil increases in the world, there is a compensatory power, an additional spiritual endowment, a revelatory gift for the righteous. This added blessing of spiritual power does not settle upon us just because we are part of this generation. It is willingly offered to us. It is eagerly put before us. But as with all spiritual gift, it requires our desiring it, pursuing it, and living worthy of receiving it. For what doth it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him and he receive not the gift? Close quote. We are not being left alone. We are being given power by the Almighty God. Spencer W. Kimball said, To be a righteous woman, and I might add a man as well, is a glorious thing in any age. To be a righteous woman during the winding up scenes on this earth before the second coming of our Savior is an especially noble calling. The righteous women's strength and influence today can be tenfold what it might be in more tranquil times. We need not be troubled because he has and will continue to give us power to do whatever is necessary to accomplish his purposes for ourselves and for the world. I'm remembering in Sherry Dew's talk that I was talking about at the beginning, she was talking about and asking us the question of, do you think that the father would have taken any chance that he would send down spirits to this time? that would not be able or have the power to accomplish his purposes. Absolutely not. You are here at this time for this purpose, for this exact reason, and you are being and will be given everything you need as you rely on the Savior in order to survive this time spiritually and to propel his work forward. 
All right, the next thing that I want to talk about in section 45 is verse 9. But first I want to quote from the Come Follow Me manual in explaining what a standard is, because in verse 9 it uses the word standard. Anciently, a standard was a banner or flag carried into battle. It rallied and unified soldiers and helped them know where to gather and what to do. A standard is also an example or rule that other things can be measured against. All right, so verse 9, it says, And even so I have sent mine everlasting covenant into the world, to be a light to the world and to be a standard for my people, and for the Gentiles to seek to it and be a messenger before my face to prepare the way before me. Wherefore come ye unto it, and with him that cometh I will reason as with men in days of old, and I will show unto you my strong reasoning. Elder Marcus B. Nash said, The new and everlasting covenant encompasses the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, including all ordinances and covenants necessary for the salvation of mankind. So, the new and everlasting covenant is our banner carried into this battle of mortality. He sent it here to a place where Satan is ruling over his dominion. We need not be troubled because the fullness of the gospel is here. We have been given all the tools, all the knowledge, all the covenants necessary to succeed. We have been given a standard to rally to. And if we come to it, we will be given understanding and peace of mind. I love that he says, I will show unto you my strong reasoning. We need not be troubled because as we rally to the flag, which is the new and everlasting covenant, our minds will be brought into harmony with his and we will be given all we need to make it through this battle spiritually alive in Christ on our way to becoming like him. All right, next in verse 22 and 23, it says, Ye say that ye know that the end of the world cometh. Ye say also that ye know that the heavens and the earth shall pass away. And in this ye say truly, for it is so. But these things which I have told you shall not pass away until all shall be fulfilled. Do we do that? Do we profess to believe that the world as we know it will come to an end? That the great and spacious building in all its seemingly great power will fail and give way to the rule and reign of the Savior? But as we see signs of this decline towards Satan, do we see those signs for what they are? Do we attribute them to Satan? Are we afraid to call lies, lies, and truth, truth as a way to be in denial that we are witnessing the very real last effort of he who wishes the destruction of our souls? We need not be troubled as we see the world slip into Satan's grasp. Sad? Yes, absolutely. But troubled? Anxious? Because of an unknown outcome? No. Because although seeing it is sad, It is yet another sign and testament that everything, including the sad events, will be fulfilled. Moving on to verse 32, it says, But my disciples shall stand in holy places and shall not be moved. It doesn't say that his disciples probably won't be moved. It says, My disciples shall stand in holy places and shall not be moved. We need not be troubled, because if we are true disciples of Jesus Christ, We will stand in holy places and we shall not be moved. So what part of that is our responsibility? Number one, to ensure that we are living the quality of life that would qualify us to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And number two, are we standing in holy places? I think that qualifying as a disciple will ensure that that is the case. 
I think that standing in holy places can both mean a physical location and a spiritual one. And we know that the places that we reside, that we are, can become holy through our efforts. We know that our homes become holy places as we center our lives on Him. So I think that being not moved, can it can mean a physical safety. And I think that that will be the case for many. But more than likely, it's mostly speaking of a spiritual safety. We need not be troubled because as it says in verse 17, For as ye have looked upon the long absence of your spirits from your bodies to be a bondage, I will show unto you how the day of redemption shall come, and also the restoration of scattered Israel. We as humans naturally fear death, but through him we can learn to not be troubled, as he calls it, by the long absence of your spirits from your bodies, because he will bear witness to us through the Spirit that the day of redemption shall come and the restoration of scattered Israel will happen. We will all be reunited with our bodies and Israel will be gathered. And eventually, our testimony through a witness of the Spirit will become knowledge because we will get to see it. And as it says in verse 45, But before the arm of the Lord shall fall, and angels shall sound his trump, and the saints that have slept shall come forth to meet me in the cloud. Wherefore, if ye have slept in peace, blessed are you. For as ye now behold me and know that I am, even so shall ye come unto me, and your souls shall live and your redemption shall be perfected, and the saints shall come forth from the four quarters of the earth. And at that day, when I shall come in my glory, shall the parable be fulfilled which I spoke concerning the ten virgins. For they that are wise, and have received the truth, and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide, and have not been deceived, verily I say unto you that they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, but shall abide the day. And the earth shall be given unto them for an inheritance, and they shall multiply and wax strong, and their children shall grow up without sin unto salvation. For the Lord shall be in their midst, and his glory shall be upon them, and he will be their king and their lawgiver. There is so much to look forward to. We don't know the exact timeline of all these things. And I think that right now it feels like it could be feel relatively long. But I have a feeling that even if I die before the second coming of the Lord, I think it will feel incredibly short, that it will feel as though he was near. He was almost here. He tells us in verse 62 that great things await us, that living as a true, pure city of Enoch-like Zion society will be a reality. As Elder Eyring said, You sisters, your daughters, your granddaughters, and the women you have nurtured will be at the heart of creating that society of people who will join in glorious association with the Savior. You will be an essential force in the gathering of Israel and in the creation of a Zion people who will dwell in peace at the New Jerusalem. The Lord tells us in verse 35, Be not troubled. For when all these things shall come to pass, ye may know that the promises which have been made unto you shall be fulfilled. We need not be troubled as we see prophecy fulfilled. Yes, even the terrible ones. Because we know the outcome. We know exactly what the outcome will be. 
the only variable that we can control is our own personal agency. Will we get to be some of those who will be at the heart of creating that society of people who will join in glorious association with the Savior? That is up to you and up to me. I'd like to bear my testimony that I know that this church is the true and living, breathing church of Jesus Christ. I know that he will come to the earth again someday. I put my complete trust in him. I am okay with whatever will happen because I know that he is in charge. I know that his plan is perfect. It makes me think about the song, Come, Come, Ye Saints, when it says, Why should we mourn or think our lot is hard? Tis not so, all is right. And I bear my testimony that even the things that feel wrong right now, even the things that feel unresolved, it will be all right in the end. We just need to trust Him, have faith in Him, and build ourselves fully and entirely upon Him. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.